morning. Welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. We're nearing the end of our study in Deuteronomy. We have this week and next, and then we'll be uh, shifting gears uh, and looking at uh, uh, First Peter. But before we get there, before we, we shift gears, we do have two more sermons in this series. And uh, if you've read ahead in Deuteronomy, you'll know that it kind of winds, winds down a little bit uh, after this chapter, chapter uh, 30. But this is chapter 30 is, I think, one of the pinnacles of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, one of the most significant chapters in the book. And what I would describe as the key to understanding our relationship to the law, uh, or at least partially. Uh, there's other texts in, in Scripture that we've looked at over the, over the months before, but this one is a in my mind, is a major interpretive key for us to understand uh, how we relate to all the things we've been hearing over the course of the past months. So with that, let's turn to our text. We're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 30. Uh, We'll look at the whole chapter, Deuteronomy 31 to 20. Deuteronomy 30. Uh, This is God's word. And when all these things come upon you, The blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will, take, he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that, your love, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hands, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of the cattle, of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord, for the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your father's. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law, then when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and statutes and his rules, Then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. 
You shall not live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days and you that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, to give them the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word. Lord, that you would reveal to us the glories of Christ in the gospel. Uh, that we would see Jesus more clearly this morning. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In C.S. Lewis's most popular book, most popular work, uh, which is, anybody? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a discussion that occurs uh, between Aslan, the lion, and the two Pevensey girls, Lucy and Susan. After Aslan died and after the stone table broke in two and he had come back to life, there's a conversation that sort of the, the, the new Aslan, the bigger-than-life Aslan has with uh, Susan. And if you haven't read the books, you must understand that Aslan gave up his life for the second youngest Pevensey child, uh, Edmund. And so he was put to death on this stone table by the white witch and the horde. I don't know if, you've, if you haven't read the book, it, there was an evil horde that put him to death. You see, Edmund had broken the law of the land and his life was forfeit to the white witch. And Aslan traded his own life for Edmund's. Um, so if you haven't read the book, go read the book. It's good. There's movies out there as well, but read the book. Um, But here, after Aslan was bigger than life, has a conversation with Susan and Lucy, sort of the resurrected Aslan, if you will. And Susan and Lucy, they were trying to make sense of, wait a minute, you're alive? They had just been mourning over the body. And Aslan said to them, Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Lewis painted a beautiful picture of the cross and of the resurrection and the power of it. But the thing that struck me as I recalled this passage was the idea of that deeper magic. Uh, As we've studied the law, I'm constantly aware of how heavily the law can weigh on us. The commandments of God can weigh on us. It can feel sometimes like a crushing load. In fact, on its own, it is a crushing load, the law and its demands. And yet, despite that feeling, despite realizing that there's almost, no, 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 there is no way for us to obey the law and live, which was what we've been reading about all throughout Deuteronomy. That apart from grace, there is, there is nothing that we can do. Despite the fact that we know this intellectually, I think we still struggle in thinking, well, if I just try a little harder at it, it will all work out. That's the fickleness of our own minds and our hearts. In the meantime, as we try and work out our salvation this way and trying to earn our way, in the meantime, we are dying and we are enduring the curse of the law and all the pain of disobedience to it. 
Chapter 30 of Deuteronomy is like that deeper magic. It's not magic. That was just a picture, a figure, right? In, in the Chronicles of Narnia. But, but in the same way, Deuteronomy 30 is like that deeper truth that sets us free from death and brings us to life. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. I want us to grapple with the law and its demands, but I want us to see Jesus and his power to give us new hearts and a new life. That's what we want to see. How Jesus frees us from the burden and the weight of the law. Uh, So with that in mind, we're going to look at this in just two parts. First, the heart of the matter. And secondly, Christ as the end or the purpose of the law. Christ, the end of the law. The heart of the matter and Christ, the end of the law. So first, the heart of the matter. Now, I generally speaking try hard uh, not to show you all my work that I do in the study. But I want to show you a little bit today. Just a little piece of the work that I do in the study. Uh, There's one little nugget of information that I want to point out that I think will help us understand the text a little bit. Um, Verses 1 to 10 stand together as a a unit, as a section. It all stands as a big piece. In fact, if we go back all the way to the curses that we looked at last week, the blessings and curses, that section all the way to the end of chapter 30 really stand as one big section. But here, verses 1 to 10 stand together. Verse 1 sets the stage. It's a glimpse into the future, if you will. And it assumes that the blessings and the curses of the law have come to pass, that they've fallen on Israel. It kind of looks forward and says, when the blessings and the curses, and I would argue that it emphasizes the curses, and and I argue that because the emphasis uh, of the curse is on the people of God being banished, exiled from the land of promise. They're no longer living in the land. That's verse 1, kind of sets that stage for us. But then, verses 2 to 10 form what scholars call a chiasmus or a chiasm. And now, if you're unfamiliar with that term, I'll just briefly describe it. A chiasm is a literary device, and it's meant to drive our attention, to draw our attention to a particular aspect of the text through the literary structure, the sort of the way the, the sentences are structured. And the structure is this. There's two parallel groupings of sentences, right? Uh, and these groupings of sentences are like a mirror in parallel. So the idea or the concepts in the sentences are repeated, but they're repeated in reverse. So if you were going to write this in a diagram, if you were a literary major, you might do this with, with some poetry or something. It would be A, B... C, then what? A prime. I'm sorry. Not A prime, because that would be perfect parallel. Then it would be B prime, A prime. So A, B, C, B, A. So that's the kind of chiastic structure. And its goal is to focus our attention in the center, in the middle. What's going on there? Um, And so verses 2 to 10 form this. So here's the, the, the way we see this played out in our text. Verses 2 and 10 are the outer mirror, if you will. Each uh, port kind of repeats itself. And its focus is on the return to the Lord with all the heart and all the soul according to the law. In other words, it's sort of getting at repentance. You see that in verses 2 and verses 10? 
Verse 2, and return to the Lord your God you, when this happens, you and your children, and you obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. And then in verse 10, it repeats it. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Book ends there. Verses 3 to 5 and verses 9 also stand in parallel. Okay? And this section gets at the blessings of, God's, of, of God that are restored to them. And it particularly focuses on the fruitfulness. And you can see this in verses 3 to 5. Their fortunes will come back. The restoring of the fortunes. You'll be gathered together from all the peoples from where God has scattered you. And you will enjoy all the fruitfulness of life in the land. Um, so verses 3 to 5. But then also that same thing is repeated in verse 9. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. And then we move to the center. Okay, Those verses, now we move to the center. Verses 6 to 8 are at the center and point and form a point of emphasis in the text. And therefore, we ought to pay close attention to these words. And the first thing that we see in verse 6 is that God will circumcise the heart so that you will love with all heart and soul. That you will may live. This is the goal of it. God is going to change your heart. We've been uh, in our uh, high school class, we've been kind of working through salvation and the points of salvation. There is a technical term for this, which I could ask Matthew or Kate and call them out now, but I won't do that. We call this regeneration, right? The the new heart being transformed. We'll we'll look at this in just a minute here. And verse 7 expresses the work of God in judgment against our enemies. And, you know, from the perspective of history, it's judgment on the nations. But from the spiritual, large picture perspective, it's the work of Christ in, in bringing judgment on sin and crushing our greatest and final enemy, which is death itself. And then verse 8, in, in parallel to verse 6, Reiterates the hope of a transformed heart. You shall obey the Lord. So there's the literary structure. There's the, there's the, uh, how do you say it? The kind of nuts and bolts of the text there in verses one to ten. Uh, I don't often do that, but I found it helpful to kind of draw our attention. And I wanted to highlight this structure because it sets for us uh, the fundamental truth, which is our hearts must be changed. For us to obey the law. Whatever I've said about the Ten Commandments is useless unless we grasp hold of this truth. Maybe this seems obvious to you. You've grown up in the church. You hear this repeatedly in in your life. And you know, yes, my heart must be changed for me to obey. I understand regeneration. I I get that picture. But I want to press into that a little bit. Because I think... We're a lot more fickle than that. Maybe a better way to put it is, I'm a lot more fickle than that. I fall way too easily into the rhythm 
of trying to satisfy the law's demands myself. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says it best when it says the heart is deceitful above all things. And as one who knows that Christ alone is the one who can satisfy law's demands, and I'll get to that Christ satisfaction stuff in a minute, my fickleness often comes out in the way I view myself and the way that I view others. What do I mean? Well, when I sin, instead of repenting and crying out to the God who helps, the God who, re- who restores, the God who changes hearts, the God who fundamentally transforms me and makes me uh, obey, all of that, instead of going to Him, I'll do one of two things. I'll either wallow in my sin. Is anybody else a wallower? I wallow in my sin. Woe is me. I'm terrible. Who would ever like me? I like wallow. I don't go to the one who can restore me. So that's one way. Or I'll pretend. I'll hide. I'll double down on my righteousness. Let me rephrase that. I'll double down on my self-righteousness. In other areas, to pay for my infraction in the one area. It's like the person who runs after they eat ice cream. Well, I, or they run and then eat ice cream. Well, I ran today, so then I can eat my ice cream. Uh, maybe a better illustration is this. It's like the husband who's unkind to his wife, and he tries to make it up to her with flowers while he continues in his unkindness. The flowers are a gesture, right? They do nothing. The heart of the problem is this husband's unkindness And so it is similar with our attempts to cover our own sin. I think we do this even as Christians, even as those who know our salvation is from the Lord. That our hearts are ultimately changed by Him and caused by Him to grow. But we think, oh, it's still up to me. When we live as if our obedience was necessary for salvation, it not only affects our own hearts, but it also affects the way I look at other people. We can start to look down on others as we strive to build our self-righteousness up, right? Like, well, look at me. I'm good. What are you doing that for? You're a terrible parent. We get that kind of like better than thou thing. Holier than thou. Or on the other side... Other than, rather than self-righteousness, if you tend toward wallowing in your sin, you might think, well, I don't measure up to what others want me to be, and so I'm just throwing in the towel, and I'm going to live how I'm going to live. I don't want to be under this kind of judgment, so I'm just going to live how I'm going to live. And all of this, kind of like, oh, I'm not being good enough, or I'm better than the next person, at least. All of this breeding of legalism and licentiousness is because we don't have a right relationship between the law, or let me rephrase, we, we don't have a right relationship to the law. So we fail to see our relationship first and foremost through Christ. So what we need are new hearts. First and foremost, what we need are new hearts. Or maybe for the believer, what we need to remember is that we indeed have new hearts, hearts that beat for Christ. This is the most fundamental thing. We have new hearts. 
within which the Spirit of God dwells and empowers us to walk in newness of life, to put off the old self and to put on the new self. This is who we are. Nicodemus went in the middle of the night to see Jesus. You can read this in John 3. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, uh, and the Pharisees were attempting to usher in a new era of blessing for the Israelites through obedience to the law. That was their goal. They were trying to bring about the blessings that are portrayed for us here in Deuteronomy. That's what they wanted. And so they thought if we can create a society that is in perfect correlation to the law, God will restore us as a nation, will rid us of Rome, and we will establish a new era of life and blessing. That was the sort of pharisaical point of view. Nicodemus was one of these, and he was a little embarrassed to go and talk to Jesus, so he did it in the middle of the night, because here was Jesus preaching something else, something different. And so he goes to Jesus under cover of darkness. And he had an unstated question, but it was one that Jesus answered anyway. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus hoped for a way to see the kingdom. But the way Jesus presented made no sense. How could one enter a womb a second time? And of course, Jesus responds by saying that he must be born of the Spirit, born of, from above, regenerate, given a new heart. The prophets of old understood this. Jeremiah, he was a witness to the exile, to that period of time when the curses fell on the people of Israel, sort of in a very massive way. Northern kingdom was gone, the southern kingdom remained, Jerusalem was there, but now Babylon was knocking at the doors, and Babylon was coming, and he, they were going to take away the people of God into, into exile and captivity in Babylon. And Jeremiah is preaching, and he, most of the book of Jeremiah is preaching gloom and doom. You can go back, it's gloom and doom. This is what's going to happen, it's going to be terrible, kind of like we read last week. But at the end of the book of Jeremiah, He says, but there's hope. Hear these words from Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. It says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each other, each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Friends, our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in a God who changes our hearts, who makes our hearts beat for him, obey him, give praise to him, And give him glory. That's what the Lord does. He takes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. If you want to know how to be saved, then it is this. Turn from your striving and your working and your trying to be a good person. Turn from that and turn to Jesus. He alone can take the weight of guilt and sin away. He alone changes the heart. Believer, 
This is not just a message for those who are seeking the Lord. Remember, your salvation is from above. As Peter says, you have been born again to a living hope. You are no longer under the curse of the law. You've been made alive in Christ. And as I told my students today in the high school class, you are called sons of the Most High. He is your Abba Father. He loves you and He gives you His Spirit and He calls you to follow Him, but He empowers you to do it. What a glorious hope. Put away the old yoke. But our text doesn't do away with the law. It simply puts it into its right place. And this brings us to our second point, and our final point. Christ is the end of the law. Now that sounds kind of funny. <laughs> well, Rob, you just said it's the end of the law, so the law has no place. Christ is the end of the law. That, we use end in a lot of different ways, don't we? Uh, kids, when a good storybook ends... How does it end? What are the last words, the last two words? And they lived happily ever after. So that's one. What's a very simple way of that? The end, right? But happily ever after is a very common one. But the end. So that's one way we say this is the close of the book. We're going to stop. Sometimes we use the word end to describe the demise of something, right? (laughs) We came to a terrible end. That's done away with. But then there's another way in which we use end. Sometimes we say something like, the ends justify the means. What are we saying? We're saying the purpose, the aim, the focal point, the end, the purpose. This is what Jesus was when we say, Jesus, the end of the law, and Paul's the one who actually says that. He's the, he's the culminating purpose of it. Everything points forward to Jesus. Christ is the end of the law in this sense. Verses 11 to 14 uh, seem to double down on obedience being the way of righteousness. So we've just looked at verses 1 to 10, but now in verses 11 to 14, it seems like he's going backwards a little bit. Uh, Verse 11, you know, for the commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. (laughs) In fact, these verses seem to indicate that the law really isn't very hard at all. You just kind of suck it up and do it. It's not far away. It's not way over there. It's not way up there. It's right here. You've got it. No problem. Of course, we read this in the context of everything we've looked at with regard to the law, and we can clearly state in the sense of the law being easy, it is not. On our own strength, it is impossible. In our own power, we cannot do it. Verse 11 says, the law, it's not hard, it's not far off, it's not far above you, it's not so great that it's unattainable, and it's not so far away that you can't find it. And I think in one sense, this is very true, even apart from grace and thinking about Jesus, we have to remember God revealed his law to us, that it was for us, that he situates it in a way that we can understand And he wants it to be a blessing to us. He showed us the way of life and he put it in human terms. And so in this sense, in one sense, it's not hard to grasp. It's not far away. It isn't so far above our thinking. But we can get it. But there is a greater sense to this. 
God not only revealed the law, but he himself obeyed the law. Jesus came to earth born under the law that he might fulfill the law and its demands. In this sense, Christ is the end of the law. Paul expresses this idea in Romans 10 when he's talking about his own people, the Jewish people. He was having a discussion about what about them who are, who are under the law and who have the, the law on their forefront of their minds. Paul, as a, as a Jew, understood their thinking. And he says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jewish people, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but their zeal is not according to knowledge. In other words, Paul's saying they don't grasp their inability to obey the law. He goes on and he says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And then he says these words, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Friends, it is through Christ's obedience to the law, through his death and resurrection, that by faith in him we receive righteousness. Edmund, our good friend from uh, Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, deserved to die. Do you remember the scene? I don't know if you would look. He was about to die. He was rescued at the last second, and the witch came back and said, The law, the law demands his death. Do you remember that? And the witch and Aslan walked away together to talk. His life was forfeit. Yet Aslan, the righteous one, fulfilled the law's demands. And yet it was that deeper magic, the truth that Aslan's truest purpose was revealed through him to save Narnia, including Edmund. It's just a picture, right? It's just a story. But Paul goes on to say in his own way, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Friends, as we come to the end of our study in Deuteronomy, this is what I want us to remember above everything else. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. Not in our obedience, but in his. He is not far off, but he came near. I want to close with this thought. Moses is at the end of his own life, coming to the end, and he's concluding this covenant renewal with the people as they prepare to enter the land. He's calling all of creation to bear witness. Did you notice that? It says, as heaven and earth is my witness. He is reminding them of the law and its demands, the blessings and the curses that attend to it. But more importantly... He's pointing them to God. He's saying, don't, don't focus your attention on the law per se, but focus your attention on the God who gives the law. The one who changes hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And at the end of it all, he says, he has set out before them life and good, death and evil, 
And he exhorts them to choose life. Yes, the sovereign grace and power of God is necessary to change your heart. But here, friends, before you is a choice. Life or death. Paul says a little farther down in Romans 10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And he goes on and he says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Christ is the end of the law. He fulfilled it. He shattered the curse. And he calls us to trust in him. And it is in this place of faith, from a heart that is renewed by the grace of God, that we can begin to see the blessing and the freedom to walk in the way of obedience in life. That's the right relationship. You see the law, see it as a reflection of God, his character, his goodness, his purpose for man. But we see Christ, the one who fulfilled the law perfectly, the end of the law. We run to him, we rest in him, And then we walk in the power that he provides in newness of life. And the law then stands as this, as I described last week, as this great area of freedom and joy and blessing and hope. And as we do that with joy, we look like those who've been set free and the world will look out and say, wait, they have something I don't have. And all my striving, all my stressing over doing the right thing and being good. I still am locked into the the law. And yet here these Christians, they're free. Friends, this is the way of life. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.